Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. This is our first season, and if you're listening, you can join us in celebrating the official launch of season one. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk to people with amazing stories, stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain so deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy these first few episodes, and we look forward to you joining us each week. Without any further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Orient. Doctor, how are you? It's a good day. Uh, now, you're in Tucson, correct? Yes, I'm uh, actually from Phoenix, Arizona, so I spent uh, quite a bit of time in Arizona. Um, you're, you're in the thick of the heat right now, right? <laughs> it's very hot, plus we have the mountainside burning down. We have the Bighorn Fire, which is one of the biggest that's going on right now. Ah, wow. Okay, so hopefully they get that under control. Now, today I want to talk about uh, your background and some of the things you're working on. Uh, before we talk about current topics, would love to hear uh, more about your journey. So, you know, as you said, you're, you're from Tucson, Arizona. Um, your path to being a doctor, can you tell me kind of what inspired you uh, to want to practice medicine? It's a little hard to remember. It seems I'd always wanted to do that. <laughs> I, I knew that my mother was very interested in it. She was the go-to mother whenever anybody had a question. It turns out she worked for an ENT specialist during World War II. Oh, and wow. He thought, and he thought so much of her that he actually offered to put her through medical school. But instead of taking that route, she got married and had four daughters and helped him run my dad's uh, independent contracting business. But maybe it's in my blood yeah. Maybe just wanting to be independent in the blood too. My dad was was called the Renaissance contractor in Tucson. He started out as a as loading bricks onto a truck and then being a bricklayer's apprentice. But he could do just about everything: the the surveying the land, drawing the plans, laying the bricks, digging the ditches, and so he, he did a lot of like just small commercial buildings and, and was very independent. Now, you're an independent practitioner today. Uh, do you think that uh, kind of watching your father grow up uh, being a contractor gave you either insights or motivation or other types of, um, uh, you know, kind of nudges to be an independent practitioner? Well, I think so. For one thing, it, it was possible. He could do all this on his own. He wasn't uh, subservient or uh, worried about any employer firing him. I mean, yeah. he had to do a good job and, and be we do. People always said, my gosh, you did exactly what you said you were going to do and the, for the price that you said you were going to do it. He says, well, we wrote a contract and we signed it. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? So so I think it was a good a good example to follow. Yeah. Now, now we'll stay on this for a little bit uh, longer. When you were in uh, school, um, in, in uh, high school, um, what was what were you thinking you're going to do uh, when you went to college? Oh, I thought I would major in science which I did. I majored in chemistry and mathematics and I started out as a pre-med. So I did all the pre-med courses as well. Yep. Now being a woman at that time going into medical school, was it like, I got this, you know, no, no reservations or were there signals that you received that, you know, you had to fight to kind of get the courage to make sure you could go push through and actually apply and, and complete medical school? Well, I applied for the first 
class to graduate from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, and my interviewers were really very discouraging. So, well, do wow. you think you can handle this? I mean, I know you've done well in college, but medical school will be 10 times harder. And are you sure you can do this? Plus, I had this little problem of fainting at the sight of blood, or if anybody even explained, even talked about something. I, I cured myself with one, a couple nights in the ER and, um, and medical school. And once I learned how to sew, I was okay. <laughs> I felt like I could do something. But so I, I did, I did um, not accept that, that, uh, that offer to go to medical school instead. I went into teaching, which was another one of my first loves. I was homeschooling my little sisters when I was about five years old. And I taught in a rural high school. I taught uh, physics and chemistry and biology and geometry. And I liked that pretty well. But I, I knew that I was really running away from what I was supposed to do. So yeah. eventually I got up the courage and I went to medical school in this foreign country called New York City <laughs> at Columbia. And uh, and then I went to uh, Texas for my residency and I came back to Tucson. I was on the faculty at the University of Arizona College of Medicine mm -hmm. and worked at the VA for yeah. about five years. Then I went into solo private practice. Now, uh, just wrapping up that, you, you, you said this was the first class uh, at the University of Arizona Medical School uh, that you were interviewing for? Or, yes. Or this was an, okay. And so... They had the audacity to say, hey, are you sure you could handle this? And and they're the upstart ready to start their program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I, I was really kind of surprised when um, the second time I applied, they turned me down. But Columbia accepted me. Yeah. Maybe they just wanted some some people from the West. I don't know. That's it turned out that I did OK. I was worried. I was worried that I did OK. Yeah. So once you, you got back, uh, did you go straight into private practice or did you work for, for someone initially? I was, I was a VA doctor. I worked oh, okay. at the Tucson VA. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, you know, I'm a veteran. I was in the Navy. My dad's, uh, was in the military and, uh, I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand uh, when they hear the word VA, um, you know, obviously it's one of the, the largest healthcare providers uh, in the country. Um, what is it like being a physician in, um, you know, in a VA hospital? I had some very good colleagues there, but um, I, I knew that I had I had to get out of there. For one thing, they might kick me out because I wasn't doing my job. My job was to be the gatekeeper, and mm -hmm. that is to kick out veterans who did not have a service-connected disability. And uh, I was doing something you weren't supposed to do, like they come into the unscheduled clinic with a problem, and I'd give them an appointment to see me <laughs> the next couple of days to make sure their asthma was getting better or whatever. You weren't supposed to do that. You were supposed to tell them to that they weren't that didn't they weren't service-connected, so they yeah. were supposed to go out of there. So for folks who um, – Work in a place like that, and they're ready to make the leap. They know that it's time to go, you know, out on their own. Um, were there any key challenges that you found uh, when you were when you said, "Hey, it's time for me to go start my practice"? Um, you know, did you you have a great reference, uh, any mentors, or was it kind of like learn as you go? But this is my thing; I'm doing it. One of my colleagues that I had very little contact with ever before or after, I said, well, you know, going into private practice, that. he said, it's easy. You can do it. Okay. 
There was an office that was for sale by a doctor, elderly urologist. Um, my mother went into, became my front office and the manager. I, I had a mentor who was in private practice who showed me, you know, how to set up the pegboard accounting system and so on. And my dad came, did some remodeling in the office and he came in every Sunday and he and I cleaned the place on Sundays and we, we, uh, we just, did it all ourselves. I never signed up with any any managed care organizations, and uh, we just took care took care of patients. Now that's fantastic. Now, do you think uh, any of those uh, those kind of tactics or that approach, uh, you know, has that changed? If someone was starting off today, uh, would they have to do things differently just with the dynamics of the industry? It is harder today, but I think one problem is medical students don't think they have any choice. They think they're going to have to sign up and be an employee and that the private practices, the, the, those guys are just dinosaurs and they're not going to survive. I do know a doctor in Phoenix who went into a third-party free practice immediately after he finished his fellowship at a very prestigious place. He's a specialist in otoneurology, one of a very, rather few in the country. He gets patients from from all over because they just can't get the kind of excellent care from anybody else that they can get from him. Yeah. And, and so for someone, you know, like that, who has a specialty, um, do you think they are more, they're more gravitating toward uh, their own practice or they're looking for that kind of protection, um, if you will, from being an employee? I think that people who are specialists may fear they're not going to be able to make it because they're very dependent on referrals. Uh, and so okay. many patients have managed care plans, which are really not insurance, but they they can only get what the plan allows them to have. And if the doctor's not on the list, it's much more difficult to start out these days and get referrals because the people, the doctors on the plan will only refer to other doctors on the plan or they might get kicked out themselves. It doesn't matter who can do the best job for the patient. It's who has agreed to whatever the, the contractual provisions are. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's always fascinating to me kind of hearing the dynamics of an industry I'm not familiar with. And, you know, we have as uh, individuals, the touch points that we're familiar with um, going to a hospital, you know, interacting with uh, with a physician. But uh, it's so different when you kind of understand all the dynamics in the background that you all have to deal with to actually operate. So uh, that's that's pretty insightful. Well, the things in the hospital have changed so much. At, at one point, I had privileges at five hospitals, so I would mm -hmm. make rounds at least once a day, maybe twice a day. If I saw a patient in the office that needed to be in the hospital, I could call the hospital, reserve the bed, write out the orders, and the patient could take the orders to the hospital, get direct admit, admitted, and everything was fine. Now, very few independent doctors even go to hospitals. The hospitals do it all. You can't get in there without going through the emergency room. And once you're there, you really are at their mercy. And mm. the doctors are employees. They have to follow the administration's policies. If they don't, they can have their whole career ruined. So wow. once you're there, um, you really are at their mercy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes such a great case for, um, you know, finding that conviction to be independent and really taking control of your, your destiny. I'm sure that was pretty liberating, uh, even though it sounds like it was uh, a lot of work to get it going. 
Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about another topic where you started writing. And uh, as I understand it, you you wrote a article that uh, you tried to get published and it got rejected. And it sounds like, you know, you have this fantastic resilience where, you know, you're not going to take, you know, no for an answer. And uh, you uh, you kept writing and you eventually got published somewhere else. Tell me a bit more about kind of what, um, you know, triggered you to, to want to start writing and uh, kind of the journey of getting that first article published. Well, I think it's a disease. Do you think you have to? I mean, it's just something I can't not do. <laughs> uh, one problem with being at the VA was that you, I, and I only found out this after I'd been there for quite a while, is you were not allowed to criticize the government. Oh, okay. And that was a problem. And then I found out that these medical organizations that I had so much respect for, like the American College of Physicians, were heavily politicized. And they really were against the independent practice of medicine. So wow. there was this article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a Marxist view of medical care that stopped just short of calling for the violent overthrow of our constitutional government. So I wrote a reply to that. And, of course, it got rejected. So I turned it into something else. It was published in a little um, booklet by the Foundation for Economic Education, which is about free market economics, free enterprise, really the basis for our our prosperity, for our freedom. And the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons called me up one day and asked permission to reprint it. I said, sure, but who are you? <laughs> so I went to their meeting and I met a lot of old, mostly old guys who had been in independent practice for a long time. They told me a lot about the ropes they, of how to do it. They told me a lot about the ethics, about how important it was to see the individual patient. And I loved it so much that I had been there meeting every every year ever since. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Now, um, just quickly going back to something you said that I think is worth calling out, um, you know, where some of these uh, administrators and practitioners were really um, and maybe still are, you know, kind of against the individual or independent um, practitioner. Do you think there, you know, is that a trend that is compounding? Is that just uh, a fight that's been going on for decades or like, like how is that um, changing, if at all? Well, it's been going on for decades, and it started back when I was I was for a while in the medical executive committee and chairman of the Department of Medicine, and and I could see that that the the medical executive committee, the independent practitioners, were gradually being phased out. Hospital employees were be, being put into place. Um, there were there were arguments at medical staff meetings about whether we were going to form this vertically integrated group and and get into a much more regimented practice. And I, I could kind of see where things were going. And now I think that independent doctors have really no say in the hospital. Medical staff bylaws are such that the doctors don't even have any due process rights at all if they if they're a competitor or somebody powerful on the staff, they can make up peer-reviewed charges against them and virtually ruin their career. The doctor may, be, may have no recourse at all. Wow. Now, is that just kind of a strength in numbers that they're kind of disaggregated and there's not enough of a consolidated voice? Or, or what, what, you know, what's kind of led to them um, you know, losing that um, seat at the table? Well, I think a lot of hospitals are being bought up by these big conglomerates, these big cartels, and their bottom line is making money. Yeah. And that's it. 
I mean, they they cry poor, but they all have construction cranes out in front. Uh, We used to have this little community Catholic hospital that went by Catholic rules of medical ethics, but those were eroding, and and now I I think it's still called Carondelet St. Joseph's, but it's owned by some big corporation. I think that they're they're just purely follow the corporate the corporate rules. Yeah. And the patients and their families, and even if you apl- complain to the bishop because they're trying to kill your son because they want his organs, and at least that's what you think is going on, and you can't get a second opinion from another neurologist, um, it really is both frightening and, and really appalling. Wow. That's, uh, that's yeah, that's scary. Now, Help me, you know, you, you have a unique perspective on this uh, as someone who's worked in the field for, for a while. Uh, help me unpack the, the tension. You know, you, you brought up uh, free markets and it feels like there's a tension on the ind- independent practitioner um, as well, or, or I guess alongside these uh, large conglomerates that would, you know, would, would probably argue that they're, they're here for free market capitalism, um, but they're actually pushing out, you know, many of the, the folks that um, uh, potentially um, uh, can offer a really valuable service uh, in the market. H- how do you reconcile the tension between both of those sides saying, hey, um, uh, you know, I belong here um, and I'm really just trying to exercise my right to, to deliver this service? I think a lot of people, including people who call themselves conservatives or even advocates of the free market, confuse corporate socialism or state capitalism with free markets because things are being owned, centrally owned and directed by people who whose only interest is the bottom line and not the patients. They have no ethical commitment to the individual patients. But then organized medicine has gone along with this because the oath of Hippocrates has been virtually edited out of existence. And it used to be my responsibility is to my patient to prescribe for him according to the best of my ability and judgment and never do harm to anyone. If you look at all these surrogate things that may call themselves a Hippocratic oath, you don't find the words do no harm in there anywhere. Um, Patient confidentiality is out the window. The doctor has additional responsibilities to the state or to populations rather than to the individual. And it really is, it's kind of unsaid, but it's tacitly agreed that you may have to hurt people for the good of of the collective. Whereas wow. I see, you know, every patient is important. Every patient is an individual. You can't have a good society if every individual is not important. I mean, that was yeah. the whole sort of Nazi, of the Nazi medical uh, ethic was that the state the collective comes first. Yeah, that's uh, now. Now, how do you think, uh, you know, with those types of ideals uh, kind of becoming more commonplace and maybe even, um, you know, kind of the standard, um, I guess, two part question. How how do we challenge that? And then what do you think is the solution to a more balanced approach? I, I think that f- that it's kind of when you talk about balanced What's the balance between good and evil? If you get comp- good compromises with evil, you lose. Or what's a balanced approach between uh, the truth and the lie? 
I mean, one of my good friends would say, well, why can't you be more balanced? He said, well, what am I supposed to do? Halfway between the truth and a lie? <laughs> no, that, that isn't really possible. I think that the, the big objective of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons is to preserve the ideal and to preserve the ability to get out of the system. The more independent doctors we have out there, then at least these big conglomerates have some competition where people have a choice, where people can see. Unfortunately, everybody thinks, well, we have to have insurance, but it isn't really insurance. We have to turn over all of our money, which means all of our power, all of our choices to this big corporate entity that that doesn't care one bit about any of us. Well, yeah, the the doctor or the patient, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah. Uh, Let's go back to um, you brought up the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons where you got that, um, you know, one of your your essays published and then eventually uh, you became part of uh, the organization. Tell me a bit more about uh, kind of the charter there and, uh, you know, kind of your role over the years. Well, the charter was made in 1943. And it was to preserve the practice of private medicine with physicians working for their patients and to combat the tendency, even back in 1943, to have a government takeover of the practice of medicine, which occurred in 1965. We had Medicare and Medicaid, which almost immediately tripled the prices of everything, and almost immediately the government in a futile attempt to try to control the, the costs started imposing more and more dictates on what a physician could do and what he couldn't do. And these days, a physician could be accused of fraud, even if he does something that the Medicare bureaucrats think was unnecessary. Mm. But it doesn't matter what the patient wants, what the patient needs. Um, it's determined at some higher level by somebody who has no no even human contact with these people. So how, um, again, I want to get my head wrapped around the structural components of this. If someone said, hey, we shouldn't um, uh, have government-run medicine, but those same people may be advocating for these uh, kind of ultra-consolidated corporate entities, like, like what, what's the difference between those two? Not very much, in my opinion, which is why I find myself agreeing with leftists on some some ideas, because we look at managed care, it really is terrible. It's mm. mistreating the patients, its ethics are upside down and backwards, and it's just plain evil. Um, what we really need is the direct relationship between the patient and the physician, and and the freedom to to do that. And right now we've got everybody so dependent on this huge system that it seems to me the only thing to do is to preserve the way out, to preserve as many independent practices as we can so that patients, if they find they're being mistreated, they have a choice. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a great, great mission. And, uh, you know, it sounds like one of those things not only worth fighting for, but um, it needs, uh, you know, kind of a rally of folks together to kind of fight um, what's, uh, you know, probably a, a lot of inertia uh, that's already in the system and folks who don't want to change the, the status quo. Um, I, I want to switch to some of the topical things here. So uh, the, the organization you work with um, has filed a suit, I believe, against the FDA. Um, yes. And I know... Um, there have been some uh, recent articles and recent media coverage on, um, you know, uh, testing, slowing down certain hospitals, not um, 
looking at, at, at testing some of the drugs. Could you tell me a bit more, it kind of educate me and the audience on how to think about, um, uh, number one, what the, the real root of the problem is here, and two, what you guys are trying to accomplish? Well, it's on what's on everybody's mind and everybody's panic-stricken about this new virus, which is not even half as bad as the Hong Kong flu in 1968 when we had Woodstock and, and nobody thought about shutting down the economy and not allowing people to get their dental care or their medical care for things that were not decided to be essential by some person in authority and, you know, putting all kinds of small businesses out of business for this. They said, well, we're going to have to live like this all six feet apart, masks and so on, until we have a vaccine or an effective treatment. Well, we found out that there is a very effective treatment was discovered in, in France. Actually, it was discovered in the laboratory back in around 2003 that this old drug hydroxychloroquine, which has been used by hundreds of millions of people for 65 years to prevent malaria. It's being used now to treat lupus and rheumatoid arthritis with great success. It's not completely safe, especially if you overdose on it, but it's safer than most of the drugs that are available over the counter. It's safer than Benadryl or Tylenol or aspirin, or ibuprofen are these proton pump inhibitors that you take for the gastric acidity. It's safer than these things. And yet, almost as soon as it was talked about that this could, one, prevent people from progressing to a severe disease, once in a while there are these stories that it really brought somebody back from the jaws of death. But you wouldn't expect it to really be effective at the time somebody's lungs are destroyed and their kidneys and their heart. It, the thing to do with, as with any antiviral medicine is take it early mm. before you've got a huge viral load, before it's infected your, your lungs, and before you've got pneumonia, and you should take it early. And that if you do that, you don't need very much. It's very cheap. A whole course of treatment is maybe 20 bucks, wow. especially if you take it combined. Well, you have to have take it with zinc. Um, and sometimes also with an antibiotic. But the whole course of all three of these drugs is about $20. And it's not perfectly effective, but it, it's a heck of a lot better than anything else we have. It's far more effective than the flu vaccine. It's far more effective than Tamiflu that we've got billions of doses stockpiled if you take it early and as directed. But almost immediately after that, people started to come out to try to suppress it. And I said, well, we can't go by what this crazy doctor in France said or what doctors all over the world, Brazil, Costa Rica, Honduras, the United States, we're seeing very good results with this treatment in our patients. Well, we've got to have these trials. So they set up these trials. They were giving it to people who were already mostly dead and which you wouldn't expect it to work. And one one that's still published in JAMA that hasn't been retracted is they were giving these seriously sick people a lethal dose of chloroquine, which is older than hydroxychloroquine, not quite as safe. But it was a, a dose. It's got a very long half-life. And if you add up the doses they were giving in the first few days, it was enough to kill people. It's, I'm surprising that more people didn't die Goodness. from it. Um, but that's still there. And then the, 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 the studies that are being used to debunk this, they all of them use it in 
very seriously sick people, and even hydroxychloroquine is arguably overdosed. So they say, oh, it doesn't work. And then there were people who got arrhythmias, cardiac arrhythmias, which is one of the possible side effects. But it's a very rare one when you use it in the right dose and when you use it in people who aren't already seriously sick, and the virus itself infects the heart and is expected to cause some of these arrhythmias. So we're taking this drug that is very, very safe and make it into something it's too dangerous. And people believe that because that's what they're being told by the FDA. Look, what's the FDA just looking at our best interests? Well, if you look at the few bureaucrats in these agencies, they have huge conflicts of interest with big pharmaceutical companies who want to get approved a new drug that at the moment is not approved for anything they tried it for Ebola. It didn't work for that. It's been sitting on the shelf. One dose of it can cost you $1,200 instead of a whole wow. quarter for 20 bucks. And so they're, they're de- and it has a lot of side effects itself. It's, its results so far have been very disappointing. Or then there are others who want a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And they want, to, they want to vaccinate everybody in the world. <laughs> and, and if one out of 10,000 persons dies, well, that's okay. Um, and the components of at least one form of the vaccine may cost $1,000 for a few grams of it. And you have to preserve it with liquid nitrogen. So I've heard I need to look more into that. But you've got to treat – but there's not been a virus aside from smallpox that has ever even arguably been wiped out by a vaccine. Mm-hmm. There's the, the disease still occurs, and if we've got a treatment that's very cheap and safe, and you don't have to give it to 7 billion people, you only have to give it to people who are affected, then why wouldn't we pres- want to preserve this treatment? And a doctor who's looking at individual patients would say, hey, let's give this a try. Instead of telling people, go away, um, don't come in my office. You might infect me. There's nothing I can do for you. Come back to the hospital if you can't breathe. And that's the standard of care. I mean, this is, I mean, this is outrageous. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty appalling. I mean, when you call out the piece on where, you know, bureaucrats and the FDA are aligned with these pharmaceutical companies that I get their motive. They're saying, hey, let's not use this thing that already exists. Uh, let's go create some new profit center. Um for folks like myself in the audience where, you know, we're not experts and we're trying to kind of navigate through the media and online resources to make sense of this. And well, we can talk to people like yourself and you can help give us some information. But um, like, how, how do we how do we parse uh, and get that type of insight? Like, like how do we, um, you know, not just thinking about how we um, uh, you know, distinguish on like a mainstream media story. But but that aside, how do we go figure out uh, that? that is even a dynamic that we should be factoring in as we're listening to various sources of information. Well, it's very difficult. For one thing, the, the, the big media and the big social media are censoring views that the, the World Health Organization doesn't approve of. So people are told, go to the WHO, go to the CDC, who have given us terrible advice since the very beginning. And they, they have like a revolving door between themselves and Big Pharma and they, they have conflicts of interest, too. But doctors are taught to believe these authorities, so they, too, will be hesitant um, because maybe they believe what they say. But even if they don't believe what organized medicine the CDC is telling them, they have been 
they're afraid of losing their license because mm. the FDA has influenced state medical boards and pharmacy boards to actually persecute doctors, threaten to delicense them or threaten to jerk the pharmacy's license if they dispense this medication. So it's very difficult. And we have with the most prestigious medical journals like the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine retracted papers that were based on this poor science, but people still think that the drug is da- that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous and ineffective, even though these big journals retracted the studies. Um, the media didn't talk about that. They talked about the, the original dubious results. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this is a challenge on all fronts, including healthcare. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not an easy fix, but it's great to get um, you know, better uh, sides of the information. Uh, I want you to educate um, uh, us on uh, stockpiling. Um, we hear that in the media a lot. Um, like, like you know, we can imagine there's a stockpile in a warehouse that you know uh, doctors don't have access to because of some regulation. But, but what is that like? What, what's the history of stockpiling? Why, why would there even be uh, a process or something around having medicine that is uh, parked someplace but can't be um, prescribed and distributed? Well, we have a strategic national stockpile of many things that the government wants to have on hand in case there is an emergency. Okay. And we can't manufacture enough of it so that it's kept in reserve. And, you know, like when we have an oil reserve and other other things like that. Um, so it's not a bad idea to have a stockpile. And when it looked as though hydroxychloroquine might be in demand, but it, but there might be a shortage – then a number of drug companies donated to the federal government many millions of doses of mm. this drug so that it could be distributed as needed. But instead of doing that, the FDA is sequestering it and they can, well, we have this emergency use authorization, which is only for patients who are in the hospital who can't get access to a, a uh, controlled trial. So mm. nobody else can use it. And this is interpreted to be nobody else should use it, even if it doesn't come from the stockpile. <laughs> and that's because the person who, was in, who got this through named Rick Bright, who is a PhD in something he is not a physician, decided that he, he thinks hydroxychloroquine shouldn't be used. Well, he's got a few conflicts of interest. But even if he doesn't, that's his personal conviction. And he's going to decide for all the doctors and all of the patients in this country that they're not going to have access to this drug because he thinks they shouldn't. Now, is there some type of legal framework, a piece of paper that gets signed? Like, like how does his position translate to, um, you know, all of this kind of duress that's put on the system for folks feeling like I can't take action because of this person's idea? How, you know, what's the legal framework that is, is there or is it all implicit? Well, we have like an administrative state. Now we have a fourth branch of government where these experts who are not elected, who sit in these agencies for decades, have just a huge amount of power. And the I won't say that Rick Bright was used to be at BARDA, not at the FDA, but there are people in the FDA who have a huge influence on what the agency directive is. And then the agency has a huge influence on the Federation of State Medical Boards and whatever is in charge of the pharmacy boards. And then state 
officials and governors in all but four states have have believed what they said and have have you know levied these rules and regulations which are very threatening to physicians who dare to to go against them so it it, it sort of shows a problem that's not just for hydroxychloroquine but it's for medicine in general it's for our country in general that there are very very powerful people who may have an ideology that's driving them or a financial interest that's driving them who are who are posing as the experts and the rest of us say oh they know and we don't they know better than we are we can't believe these crazy doctors out there who may have a different opinion hmm. Yeah. And uh, again, this is really, I, I think, uh, you know, great context for folks to have, uh, you know, further discussion, but it's a, it's a good level set uh, to even be aware of these things. I didn't know that, you know, there's this uh, kind of uh, yeah, additional set of folks that are influencing, you know, potentially policy who aren't actually in the government. Uh, not surprising that it happens in medicine, uh, since it definitely happens uh, in other industries as well. Um, I, w- I want to talk about the um, uh Two things, I guess the 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 patents on these on this particular drug is expired. Is that correct? Long, long, long ago. Okay. It's easy to make. You you can't really make any money manufacturing this drug. And and so that makes sense that these large corporations don't really have an incentive to go go support this. Um, uh, I also believe that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, many of the um, manufacturing supplies of this are coming from China and India, and maybe there's some supply chain issues or others. But could you um, uh, could you educate me on um, how drug manufacturing of generics in other countries? How does that flow back to the U.S.? Like, is there a, is there an import process? Is there QA controls? I mean, I get electronics or you know a set of dishware, but um, thinking about how drugs are manufactured somewhere else and come to the to the U.S. Can you kind of just give me the highlights of uh, how that works? Very good question. We have offshored mostly to China the manufacture of almost all of our drugs. Hmm. We haven't been able to manufacture penicillin for decades. Uh, China, ninety percent of our prescription drugs depend on China. Now, a lot of them are manufactured in India and other places, but even those get most of their active pharmaceutical ingredients from China. Hmm. And one thing the administration is trying to do is to bring back this capacity to the United States. Now, if the drugs are manufactured abroad, we don't don't have much control over them at all. The FDA often just believes what the, uh, the foreign government tells them. And this has had some very bad results. We've had some contaminated drugs, some poisonous drugs that, that had only hurt quite a few people in the U.S. before they were taken off the market. So we – a company that's in the United States might be shut down for a trivial paperwork violation, but if it's done in China or India – we just accept what they say. Goodness. Now, is there any spot checking at, at imports when it comes to ports or things like that, or not really? I think not too much. There is a company called Valley Sure that claims that all of the drugs that it sends out, it does check for mm. purity and for having the proper dose. So we, we need to have a lot more of that. We need to have a lot of the just checking at the end, the end of the process. Yeah. 
Now, now this tension between availability of a drug that can work that, you know, many of the uh, bureaucrats and corporations aren't incentivized to push and, and the pandemic that we're facing, um, you know, you mentioned uh, in the '60s there was this pandemic. Uh, you know, what are what are any of the similarities or the lessons learned that we should have taken from back then that we're not, um, you know, keeping in mind today, um, or, or, or are they just really different experiences? Well, I think they were similar in that there was a highly contagious illness that was killing a lot of people, but people didn't panic. I mean, people did take sensible precautions. They might stay away from large gatherings. They might be more intent on staying home if they were sick. They'd be on doing more hand washing and more, more cleaning. Some schools were closed, be, uh, partly because of the, just the absentee rate. There were too many kids and too many teachers who were absent. But nobody was counting cases by the hour or by the day having it on television. People weren't going around wearing masks. People weren't, weren't scared to go into the grocery store. Uh, certainly they weren't being kept out of doctor's offices. It was the, the kind of the, the biological impacts of the, the uh, diseases similar? Yeah, it was similar. It, it did, as I said, killed a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. At first people thought that maybe this virus was 10 times more lethal than the flu and a lot more contagious. But that a lot of that fear was based on computer models that turned out to be just just wrong. Hmm. And nobody went back and just tried to say, oh, gee, we made a mistake. Um, we better change our policy. And the government doesn't like to admit to having made mistakes. But the Hong Kong flu was bad, but it wasn't nearly as bad as the Asian flu, which was in 1958. Okay. And so we've had these uh, every few decades uh, kind of events. What I think is fascinating is how short the memory is. We hear a lot of coverage on, um, you know, kind of the the, the 1918 flu. Um, but a lot of these other pieces, they don't seem to get the same level of coverage. Why, why do you think, I mean, our memory is short in general, but why do you think uh, those other, you know, potential lesson um, areas are, are not covered as much? I think there's some people who have who have other interests that maybe they want to shut the country down. They want to crush the economy. They want to sell their products. They want to tra- have a means of surveilling everybody to know where you've been, how close you've been to anybody else. Did you get your vaccine? Um, and this is kind of an excuse to implement an agenda that people have had. But but are people just easy, easily frightened and they don't have a good memory of history? This is not smallpox. This is not the Black Plague. This is nowhere near as fatal as those things, those things were. Yep. So as we're wrapping up, I want to talk about, um, you know, if you – if you were in control of all of this, um, what would you do uh, to both tackle the, the immediate shortage of uh, this particular drug and in general, um, you know, what advice or, or, or thoughts do you have on how we could do a better job of uh, how our healthcare system shows up in this, uh, this current environment? I'd make hydroxychloroquine available over the counter. Mm-hmm. I, as we have requested the judge to put down an injunction that the national stockpile has to be released to the public. They're thinking of shipping it abroad for malaria. 
instead of using it for for people who might need it here. Yeah, yeah, and we need to pay pay attention to getting better better drug manufacturing. But there was a company in in San Antonio that we could make a million pills a day once we get the. Uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient, and they had uh, they had a train bringing it from Mexico, but they was stopped at the last minute, so they couldn't do this. So it, I mean, it is possible to overcome this shortage. You don't need a lot of it. I mean, what you ten pills for a course of treatment for somebody who's infected, and then mm-hmm. maybe one pill every two weeks to protect people who are at risk. You know, our firefighters, our truck drivers, our nurses, our doctors. Or just people who see, who work in a meatpacking plant, or who are in, in contact with a lot of people. Why are we not protecting these people who are at risk? Thank you again for your time and joining us, everyone listening in. We appreciate you hanging out. Uh, we hope you learned something new and had some fun, uh, kind of exploring a topic that we may not be as familiar with. Uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, uh, as always, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again, and remember. Dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.